Good morning. Today's sermon scripture text would be Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is the word of the Lord. So in thinking about what to preach on for, for New Year's, I, I asked Pastor Philip, and he said, preach the gospel. And so... To that, I said, thanks. We, we, we do that every week, so appreciate it, you know. So I uh, also asked Pastor Carter, and he said, keep the main thing the main thing. So, uh, And so it, in reading this passage this morning, I'm sure for some of you, this passage is very familiar. Uh, it's typically, in my experience, has been used to talk about missions and evangelism and sharing the gospel and and, and all of these sorts of things. And so um, this morning, this is, this is my hope that we will preach the gospel. We will keep the, the main thing, the main thing, as well as sprinkle in some, some mission, sprinkle in some, some thoughts about evangelism. And so as we get into this passage, um, we see, uh, well, before we get into that, we're going to have two points, um, two main thoughts from this text. And so those main points will be that the world needs a shepherd and those that have the good shepherd pray for those who don't. Again, the world needs a shepherd. That's our first point. And the second point will be those who have the good shepherd pray for those who don't. The first thing we see is that the world needs a shepherd. Jesus here in his ministry is going throughout teaching and proclaiming the kingdom of God and healing. One aspect of Jesus' ministry we observe is that his ministry was that of word and deed. Jesus not only proclaimed and spoke about the kingdom, but he proved and demonstrated that by the miracles and healing that took place. This was to demonstrate his authority and reveal his compassion. What this points to for us is the reality that the kingdom that Jesus speaks of is not one with pain, suffering, and sickness. Jesus didn't heal every person he came in contact with. That wasn't his goal. He didn't need to die for that. Jesus came to accomplish salvation for that kingdom where everything will be set right. There's no need for healing in the kingdom of God because there's no sin there, nor the effects of sin. The kingdom that Jesus speaks of is the kingdom spoken of in Revelation uh, 21 verse 4 which says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there, shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Jesus, out of his choice to demonstrate and show mercy, decided to give them a taste of that new kingdom through healing. He's communicating that his kingdom is so amazing, it's like going from blindness to sight. This kingdom is so glorious, it's, it's like going from not being able to walk to running. 
you will be able to do things in this kingdom that you cannot or could not do here. This is the kingdom that awaits all those who, who trust in the work of Christ for their salvation. In verse 36, we see that Jesus had compassion on the crowds. Now, the, the Greek word for compassion there kind of gives the, the sense that a person being moved in the deepest part of their being, like the bowels, like, I mean, it's a deep yearning and, and kind of hurt and anguish um, that, that, that is characterized by this compassion. The interesting thing about this word is that in the New Testament, this word is only used when referring to Jesus's compassion and pity, which means that Jesus was moved unlike anyone else when observing the effects of sin in this world. Let's, let's look at the other passages to see uh, a little bit about what moved Jesus. So if we look at Matthew 14, 14, we see uh, it says that when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Jesus being moved by the death of a widow's son in Luke 7, verse 13, said that he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Jesus moved by the suffering of a leper in Mark chapter 1, verse 44, 41, says, moved with, moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. In Matthew 20, verse 34, Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Jesus was moved to the deepest part of himself because he understood like no one else how terrible their suffering really was. Anyone can understand and attempt to empathize or sympathize with the loss of someone's child. Jesus understands uniquely because he knows from the beginning that death was not meant to be. This is why, again, in Revelation 21, verse 4, it says that death shall be no more. Jesus is moved to the deepest part of himself because he was there in creation. Jesus knew that eyes were meant to see. Eyes were meant to see. Eyes were meant to see God's creation. Eyes were meant to see people. Jesus was moved by the leper because he understood the depths of his suffering. Jesus understood that this leper was cut off from society. What was probably equally or more damaging than the condition of his skin was his status socially. We were created for relationship. And to have a condition that forced him into isolation moved Jesus at the core. Verse, verse 36 says that Jesus had compassion on them because they were helpless, they were harassed and helpless. Now, helpless most definitely describes our situation here, but I thought it interesting to look at the Greek, kind of the Greek meaning uh, of that word helpless there. The meaning of helpless used in the original language communicates this idea of being flung around, being tossed quickly, being just kind of thrown around and, and shuffled. You have, no, you have no footing, you have no roots, anything that comes that can move you and shift you. This is, this is the idea of, of what, what it meant to be helpless. Consider the contrast of being tossed around and thrown about in life to the certainty and firm foundation of the man in Psalm, uh, Psalm 1. It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and, it, 
and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. When the Bible seeks to communicate the difference between those who are in Christ and are following the Lord and those that, that don't know the Lord or are not following Christ, it's typically um, some analogy of being planted or having a firm foundation or being blown away by the wind, not having any foundation in your life. And this is the, this is the situation that Jesus is looking out amongst these people. And he's seeing them. They have, no, they have no firm foundation. Anything that comes in their life can blow them and move them in any direction. Matthew 7, 24 through 27 says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. What Jesus saw was not just the physical ailments that were the effects of sin in this world. He saw the future fall of a life built on sand. He was moved by the deception of sin and destruction that it would lead in the lives of these people. What the Holy Spirit communicates through Matthew is that really to sum it all up, Jesus was moved by the fact that the world needed a shepherd. What Jesus saw was life outside of the leadership and protection of a holy and righteous God, and it moved him to the core. What was probably more heartbreaking than the suffering caused by sin was the fact that they had no one to care for them and lead them through this suffering. The good news for us is that this compassion moved Jesus to the cross. Jesus' final work of ministry was to accomplish salvation for those that needed sight, not only in this world, but in eternity. Jesus' compassion led him to take on our sin in order that he would be our shepherd. The good news for us in, in the year 2020 is that Jesus still has compassion. Jesus still sees. While there are many who follow Christ as the good shepherd, there are still yet many who are harassed and helpless. There are many today who are flung around and tossed about in life. Many are still chasing what they believe will fulfill them, hoping that the new year, the turning of a, of a calendar, will bring the change that they desire. Last week, I saw many social media posts about how people experienced 2019 and the whole decade, a lot of ups and downs and, and successes and failures, and a lot of resolutions you know, about 2020 were being made. There's something about the changing of the calendar that gives us hope. It's a new start. We see the new year as an opportunity to be a better version of ourselves than we were the year prior. Exercise memberships are abundant now. <laughs> we set goals to get out of debt, to pay off student loans. We seek to read more. We're going to go to church more. The list goes on and on and on. We want to be more and better than we were in the year before. But what Jesus sees and what hopefully we should all see is that whether you finally drop that 20 pounds or not, you need a shepherd. Pay off all the debt you can. It won't rid your need of a shepherd. You can have the most profitable year in your career or business, but you will still need a shepherd. Jesus gives definition to the goals and the resolutions that we seek to achieve. Jeremiah 10 compares 
and describes idols and those who, who worship idols to the true and living God. We look at verse 14 and says, every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false, and there is no breath in them. You read on down to verse 21, it says, For the shepherds are stupid, and do not inquire of the Lord. Therefore they have not prospered, and all their flock is scattered. What's the application here? Inquire of the Lord. Don't base your life on worthless things. Allow the good shepherd to direct you. Don't be stupid in 2020. Follow the good shepherd. Jesus in, in Luke 12, 15 says, For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Have all the success you want to have in this new year. It means nothing without a shepherd. Proverbs 19 and 21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. If the purpose of the Lord stands, it would make sense for us to submit our lives to Christ who came that we might have a shepherd in this life and the life to come. As we continue to look at this passage, I think it's helpful to highlight that Jesus didn't owe the crowds nor us the compassion that he gives. An important practice when you're seeking to understand the scriptures is to allow scripture to interpret scripture. This passage communicates our situation as helpless and harassed, but if we take into account the whole of Scripture, I think we bring in some more elements. As we seek to understand the whole counsel of Scripture, what we see is that not only were the crowds helpless and harassed, but they were also Jesus' enemies. Romans 5.10 declares, for, while, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now are we reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Sin is that, is that thought, that attitude, that heart, that word or deed that seeks to live apart from God's commands. God's, God hates sin and will bring sinners to an eternal punishment except they turn to Christ for forgiveness and repentance. Psalm 50, uh, verses 21 and 22 read, sorry, these things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, now, but now I will rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. When I think of God's wrath against sin, I always think about that passage. It's just chilling that God is saying, you thought I was one like you in your, in your following of sin. I'm laying it before you now. Choose, make a choice, because if you don't, I will he says, I will tear you apart. Like, that's not, that's not lovey-dovey language here. This is, this is serious. Sin is serious. God hates sin, and he will punish it. So all that come to faith in Jesus by the work of his death on the cross were first his enemies. Helpless, pitiful, yes, but also enemies. When Matthew 9.36 says that he saw the crowds, he saw harassed, helpless enemies. This is important for us to note because we can begin to get the notion that God's grace to us is deserved and warranted. Jesus would have been justified in, in condemning and cursing the crowds because everyone there had sin. They suffered the effects of sin in this world, and at the same time, they needed a Savior to escape the judgment from their own sin. Contrast Jesus' 
compassion with his enemies from the, the lack of compassion you see in the story of Jonah. Jonah wanted no part of being a, message, uh, a messenger to Nineveh. For Jonah, all he could see was the affliction and oppression that Nineveh brought upon Israel. Jonah, Jonah seemed offended that God would seek to save his enemies. Israel belonged to God. Why would God now save anyone that had sinned against God's people? But what Jonah failed to realize, or sometimes what we fail to remember, is that if there's going to be any salvation at all, salvation is being extended to enemies. To then be brought in as a son or daughter in the household of God. This is what makes the gospel so amazing, that God would save his enemies. Jonah should have had compassion. Jonah should have had compassion on Nineveh if he understood grace properly. Jesus showing mercy had compassion when he didn't have to. Jesus may have had crowds of people following him, but what they wanted was relief from their suffering and healing. They did not want a shepherd. Acts 4.11 says, Jesus, this Jesus, the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Jesus was not only rejected by Israel, He's rejected by all. If people desire Jesus at all, it is because they want Jesus to be a means to an end, to solve a problem that they have or to bless them or to heal them. They just want him for what he can, he can do for them, not seeking to love him as a shepherd. In John 6, Jesus reveals the true reason the crowd came seeking him. In John 6, 26, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Romans 3, 11 and 12 makes it plain for us in that no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. These verses speak to the, to the fact that no one really seeks for God. When it comes to salvation, not only do we not desire God, we can't attain salvation on our own. John 6, verse 63 says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Only the Spirit of God can give you a desire for Christ and a love for him. Again, last week, we, we probably all, have all seen lots of social media posts about this new year of 2020 and what I'm going to do and how I'm going to finally get fit and all these new hopes and dreams that we hope to see come about in this new year. But... You know the post that I, I didn't see and you probably won't find? There's not a post saying, my New Year's resolution is to get saved. I haven't seen the, the New Year's post of, my resolution this year is to be born again. This is because the Spirit gives life. And naturally, we don't desire a shepherd. If you know Christ this morning, it's because he has given you eyes to see him. He has chosen to be your shepherd. We seek we desire Christ when we truly see him. Have you accurately seen Christ this morning? Now, this is the year 2020. I know this analogy is going to get blown out, you know, throughout the year. So let me be the first to say it. This is the year of vision. Have you seen Christ this morning? If you, if you know Christ, or better yet, if Christ has, knows you, understand that it is his grace to you. Jesus has, has had compassion on the people that were harassed, helpless, and enemies and wanted no part of him, only seeing him as a means to their ends. And such were some of you.
Do you know Christ as the good shepherd this morning? We know nothing of what 2020 holds, but we have read before that it is stupid to go through this year not following Christ. The fact that Christ had compassion, unmerited compassion on us, that should motivate our hearts to see others come to experience the grace of God. This leads us to our second point. Those who know the shepherd pray for those who don't. Jesus turns to his disciples and says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, if you've heard this passage read this morning, you thought, okay, he's going to try to convince us to go and share the gospel with people and get involved with missions. And yes, you're right. That's, that's exactly what we were about to do. But what, what I'd like to what I like to do and what I've seen done in the past is, um, is to be kind of guilt tripped into wanting to get involved in the missions and to get involved with evangelizing people. And typically that's how I've seen this, this passage used. Typically we hear of this passage, we hear Jesus had compassion, so should we, and we should get involved with the mission of God. And all that's true. But this morning I want to at least take the approach that Jesus actually has in the passage. He tells his disciples to pray. So if you're feeling guilty because the last time you shared the gospel with somebody would have been the first time you shared the gospel, it's fine. No guilt. My, my aim is not for you to leave here guilty that you're not engaged in the mission of God unless that guilt leads you to faithfully trust in Christ. What I want us to see in verses 37 and 38 is the necessity of prayer in God's mission. Jesus makes a remarkable statement in verse 37 when he says, the harvest is plentiful. What is meant by the harvest being plentiful? What is the harvest? I believe what we see in in these verses is the context is, is that of salvation. Consider that how Jesus talks about salvation says something about the nature of salvation. Jesus says the harvest is plentiful. If the faith required to believe in Jesus could be attained by us, Jesus might have said the people are many, Go and convince them to come to me. But he uses a farming analogy to describe salvation. The idea is that unless someone go and harvest these souls, they won't come. The workers are required to go go and labor in the Lord's harvest. But what is meant by the harvest is plentiful. Maybe it's helpful to see what's required for someone to be saved. To be saved, you first must need saving. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This means that everyone would be at least eligible for salvation. But I don't think that's what Jesus means when he says harvest. I I didn't grow up farming, but I know when you go harvest, you don't pick up every crop that you see. There's a sense of ripeness and readiness that comes with harvesting crops. Jesus isn't saying that everyone in the world is ready to receive the gospel. We read earlier that the Spirit gives life. So somewhere within the requirements of being a sinner and the Spirit giving life, Jesus is saying that there are many ready to receive the gospel. What's interesting about Jesus' command to pray is that he commands his disciples to pray. And then if you look down in chapter 10, you see Jesus sending out the 12 disciples to proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, this says something about Jesus and the disciples I think there's three observations that can be made uh, by this. 
it says at least that Jesus is either the Lord of the harvest or he's been put in charge of the harvest by the Lord of the harvest because he's sending out workers. Next thing we see is that it seems to be that if you're a disciple of Jesus, what it means to be a disciple is that you are sent out. This is in line with what Jesus promised his disciples in Matthew 4, verse 19, when he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus in chapter 10 is keeping his word. This is why you all have come to me. The whole aim of this is that you will be fishers of men. Now I'm sending you out. And then the third thing I think we can see is that don't worry about being sent. Christ will do that. We see that in chapter 10. He sent them out. Don't assume that they were just these polished apostles and ready to go take the kingdom. These were men that that were still very flawed, but he still yet sent them out. Our charge is to focus on prayer and being a disciple. Christ will take care of the sending and the leading. The laborers are few. Looking again at verse 38, we see that Jesus says that the laborers are few. He doesn't give an explanation for why the laborers are few. Might I add a few uh, suggestions on why the laborers are few this morning? To be clear, I think we can define a laborer here as a disciple of Christ sent out to proclaim that the kingdom of God is at hand. Romans 10, 14, and 15 lays out the role of a laborer in the, in the process of salvation. It says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And that's not the point of this passage, but I think if we were talking about laborers, Paul might add, how can he be sent unless he knows Christ? This preaching is not pulpit preaching or street preaching or for those who are in full-time vocational ministry. This preaching is available for all who believe in Christ for their salvation. I believe the, the laborers are few in our time because some just don't know that they should be sharing the gospel with people. Perhaps the laborers are few because of sin. We tend to believe that God can't use us because of the sin in our lives. Maybe the laborers are few because we just don't know what to say. I've heard many say, I would be a witness for Christ, I just I don't know what to say. Another reason the laborers are few could be because people are afraid to proclaim the kingdom of God. Maybe I would lose friends. Maybe it would make things awkward. Maybe I would offend people. Just the fear of changing the, the nature of the relationship or loss could be enough for people not to labor. We can go on and on about what possible reasons there are for the laborers being few. There's probably an infinite number of reasons why the laborers are few. But I want to call your attention to verses 27 and 31 of chapter 9, just above our passage. It reads, as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed them, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. Again, I don't know all the reasons why the laborers are few, but, it, but could it be that we don't see ourselves before Christ as these two men? Has your faith in Christ, has your salvation ever brought you to the point where you couldn't contain yourself? 
you just had to tell somebody? Think of these two men, blind. Jesus touched their eyes. Do you think that they were concerned about whether or not somebody would believe them? They had facts. I don't care what you believe, whether you thought this is a magic trick. I know I couldn't see, and now I can see. And they went throughout this town or this district proclaiming that. If you know Christ this morning, you were blind. I was blind. I didn't know Christ, even though I probably, you could probably count on one hand the times I didn't go to church on Sunday. After God changed my heart, I heard the word like never, never before. Passages I heard all my life suddenly begin to make sense. It was in front of me the whole time, and I couldn't see it. And it took Christ, the Spirit, giving me life to see these, these, these words on the page for them to come to life. Our salvation is that drastic of a change. It's, it's going from blindness to sight, from lame to running, from death to life. Every now and then, that, that truth ought to grip your heart in such a way that you just have to tell somebody. You got a Facebook about it or a tweet or something. You just have to tell somebody that I was blind and now I see. Praise God for that. I would argue that our motivation to pray to the Lord of the harvest is tied to the degree in which we understand our salvation. If we truly see our, our, saw our, our conversion as going from death to life, obedience to Christ wouldn't be so burdensome. We see our conversion as merely having eye surgery. You know, we, we could see for the most part, but Christ just kind of came in and took the scales off and just, you know, had a little cataract surgery. But I, I could see pretty good. To understand the depths from which God has brought you is the fuel for your faithfulness, faithfulness to him. As we, as we close, Jesus tells his, his disciples to pray, not just pray, but pray earnestly. If you look up earnestly in the dictionary, one definition says, with sincere and intense conviction, seriously. Jesus is commanding his disciples to pray seriously with intense conviction. Why? Because being a laborer is, is serious business. Satan doesn't give up easy and will do anything possible to keep men and women from entering the kingdom of God. Don't misunderstand the harvest being plentiful for the work being easy. This laborer must depend on the spirit of God to lead, guide, and direct. Perfection is not the requirement, though. Again, we see in chapter 10, in chapter 10 Jesus sent his disciples out. They weren't polished leaders or speakers. Peter would go on to deny that he even knew Christ. Christ knew that when he sent them out. Again, Jesus commands them to pray. Pray that the Lord would send laborers into his harvest. This is a prayer we can pray for the missionaries we support as a church. Pray that the Lord would continue to send them out. Pray for the deacons, of which I'm a member of, that the Lord would send us out. Pray for Pastor Carter and Pastor Field, that he would continue to send them out. Pray that the sustaining hand of God will keep those, keep sending out those he has already sent. Pray for your home, that the Lord will send laborers in your home. We know there are those that are harassed and helpless all around us, at school, at work, at the gym, in our neighborhoods, in our homes. Would you pray that the Lord would send someone to proclaim the kingdom of God in those areas? Pray like you mean it. Actually mean it. Pray for yourself that the Lord would send you out as a laborer. Remember, that all, remember all those possible hindrances 
to being a laborer. All those reasons I gave, and if none of those reasons are yours, whatever reason you know, you can pray for that. I, I believe God would be delighted to answer that prayer for you. God would equip you. He would empower you to overcome any sin, any barrier that would hold you back from being a laborer. Prayer is a vital part of laboring in the Lord's harvest because it demonstrates a submission to Christ the Good Shepherd. To go on our own authority is what's natural. But will you pray? Prayer will, will require patience. If you are a disciple of Christ, you've been commanded to go. That's, that's, we know that. But the first work is that of intense prayer. He has shown compassion in purchasing salvation for us when we were his enemies. How much more now will he answer our call? Pray to the Lord this year that he will send out laborers into his harvest. Let's pray.